Hello, and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today, our host is Emily Hegan, a second-year medical student at Loyola University's Stritch School of Medicine. You can find her on Twitter at E-M-I-L-Y-H-A-G-E-N-9. We'll hear her conversation with writer and journalist Sam Ashworth about his recent article on declining rates of autopsies. You can find him on Twitter at Samuel Ashworth. Now here's your host, Emily Hegan. Hi, my name is Emily Hagan, and I am a second-year student at Loyola University Chicago Stritch School of Medicine. The autopsy is a long-standing interest of mine, having observed a few autopsies prior to medical school and having written an article in my college newspaper about the declining rates of the autopsy despite its immense importance to medicine and society. I am so excited to be interviewing Sam Ashworth, author of the article that appeared in Elemental Medium in September called The Slow, Troubling Death of the Autopsy. For those of you who don't know, this article gathered great attention on Twitter among the pathology community and the public in general, with more than 2,000 claps for the article on its website. Mr. Ashworth's article was extremely informative and candid about the history of the autopsy and the challenges surrounding the autopsy. I thought he would be an amazing person to feature in this PATH elective module to help teach us about the autopsy's value to society based on what he saw and learned firsthand. That is, why the autopsy is something we should all care about, not just as students and educators of medicine, but also as people at large. So without further ado, let me introduce Sam. Samuel Ashworth is a novelist, journalist, and teacher. His work has appeared in the Washington Post magazine, Elemental, Eater, Longreads, Barrel House, and numerous other publications. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and son. So Sam, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we can talk today about the autopsy. Um, But before we delve into specific questions about the autopsy, I first would like to better understand how the autopsy article came to be And to begin addressing what you wrote in your tweet about the article that, quote, I never expected one of the highlights of my career to be capturing the attention of the National Association of Medical Examiners. So can you please first introduce yourself? Sure, I'd be glad. Um, I am a writer. I do both journalism and fiction and hopefully don't combine the two too often. My Specialty is combining research, reporting, and storytelling all together. That's generally how I approach my work, whether it's uh, reporting or whether it's writing fiction. So given that you typically have written about fiction in the past, and to my understanding, didn't traditionally cover like science and or medicine stories, prior to your article about the autopsy. Um, Can you please explain how you came to write this article about the autopsy, especially out of all possible topics in science and medicine? Uh, Yeah, um, I am definitely not a trained science science reporter or a science writer, and that's a profession and a discipline that I, I deeply respect. My exposure to the autopsy has sort of unfolded over the last decade, almost. Um, I can tell you exactly when it started. Uh, I was casting around for an idea, for a 
a book to write about. I, you know, one looks for novel ideas and sometimes they just sort of appear out of thin air and they grab you and you see the whole book. And I was sitting at a bar in Boston in I think 2011 and out of nowhere, out of my mouth fell the words, it would be cool to write a novel about a person told through the dissection of their cadaver. That was the whole idea. And that years and years on, that novel is nearing completion. And so when I first started it, I got it. I convinced two things happened. First of all, the person I was talking to at the bar said, well, you should read Stiff by Mary Roach. And I didn't know Mary Roach at that time because I was young and naive and knew nothing of the world. I read Stiff in like a day. Um, I've reread Stiff. I love Stiff. The New York Times likes to ask writers what three writers they would, what three people they would like to have dinner with. And my answer is Mary Roach, Mary Roach, and Mary Roach. <laughs> but that book absolutely changed me. Uh, I was spellbound. And I somehow convinced a friend who was a medical student in Philadelphia to let me come down and explore her gross anatomy lab. Because at the time, I assumed that that book was going to be about a medical student in gross anatomy. It would be about the, 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 that first class going, she, the medical student, going through this guy's cadaver. And so I went down to the autopsy lab and there were, there were 40 bodies. And I, I, I'm, I'm Jewish. When we have funerals, we don't have open casket funerals. We don't really engage with dead bodies very much. And I, don't think I'd ever seen a dead body. And I went in there and I was curiously okay. And I distinctly remember being hungry. I just, and, and apparently that people have told me this is common. Yes, it is. It wasn't just you. I'm, I'm glad. But I, and I remember being just fascinated and not repelled by this. And the thoughts kept percolating in the book, you know, it got put aside, I came back to it. And then in 2015, I started grad school. And by that time, another friend was getting his, in his residency in pathology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And I had gotten back to work on the book in earnest at that point. And long story short, we managed to convince the chief autopsy pathologist at UPMC to allow me to come into the lab for two weeks and this was uh set up with letters from the dean of my program and i think he, the guy who let me in might be the only person in the country who would have allowed this it was it was it was complicated and he was very understanding at the time the idea was that this was book research and that i might also write a another article about it. And so they were aware that I was there in a semi-journalistic faculty. Before I went, I pitched it to the to a different publication that I won't name. And they had signed off on it. And so they knew I was there. What they were saying was on the record. And we did interviews. The doctor, a man named uh, Dr. Jeffrey Nine, has already had an article written about him, a profile that appeared in The Atlantic in 2015. A very good article called The Doctor Whose Patients Are Already Dead. And that was written by a woman named uh, Rachel Wilkinson. So just so happened that Dr. Nine was really accommodating for all of this. And so 
it was only after being in the autopsy lab and really on day one that suddenly I saw how clear and how important this work was. And the more I learned, the more urgent I felt it was. Wow, that's great how everything just fell into place and how you like fortuitously had this idea, had everything line up so that not only could you research the autopsy in like an academic way, but also be able to observe them firsthand and meet pathologists. And like you said, so early on realized the importance of the autopsy. I'm wondering what your like working understanding of the autopsy was prior to your research and like prior to your initial idea for the book, which then, you know, took its turn into the article. When your idea hit you, were you like, wait, that's crazy. Like the autopsy is this, like, I can't write about that. <laughs> like, yeah. How did that look in your head? I mean, I'll, I, I, it's kind of great because I have actual markers of this. Um, I have drafts. Uh, when I first conceived of it, when it was a gr gross anatomy class, it wasn't an autopsy because we all know those are different. And the idea was to track this book, to structure the book around the path that a gross anatomy examination usually takes, which is thorax and sort of rippling outward and finishing with the most intimate part, the hands, which I, it's a detail I love and did not know until I went into that lab. But as I progressed, I realized that for the character I wanted, the way I, I, I envisioned her, a medical student wasn't enough because she's a little bit of a savant. Um, not like this is not a parrot. This is not a, a like a Dr. Bones type thing, but she just has a, a deep understanding of the human anatomy. And it was something that a medical student would not have had yet because it's something a medical student is developing. And so. It evolved to where I realized that, in fact, this needed to be a clinical pathologist, someone who had was board certified and everything. And then things fell apart a little bit because I had seen what an anatomy lab looked like. I'd been walked through it, but I truly did not know what an autopsy was like. I didn't know what bodies felt like or looked like. I imagine them a lot like what they look like in an anatomy lab, which is sort of blue. and Their skin is a little lead colored and people who really look dead. And you've done autopsies, you know this. They don't look dead. They're sometimes still warm. Right. So it sounds like your expectation of what the autopsy would entail is quite different from the reality. Fabulously wrong. And I had done research when I started writing these scenes. And if you go back and look at the drafts that I wrote before I got to go they were they're disasters they they're the level of incomprehension of what it's one of those things like having a kid you simply cannot wrap your head around before it happens so yeah and now that i've you know i i came back and i was thinking that i, I can never unsee what i saw in there and i'm a little sad that i might never see it again well, maybe you'll have to write a follow-up article one day and get an excuse to see it again. <laughs> I couldn't believe they, they, we found another doctor to let a photographer in for this article. Yeah, the pictures in your article were, were, were awesome and like so vivid. And it also looked like they were from multiple different hospitals. And I was thinking about that, like how 
difficult it was to have arranged all those photos and like such high quality photos. Yeah, that those photos they did. Uh, I will say because I want to I want to shout out the the office that allowed it, which was um, Dr. Alex Williamson at uh, the Long Island Jewish Medical Center in Queens. Yeah, he's actually the pathologist that I saw perform the autopsies that I saw prior to medical school. So this makes it very coincidental. But yeah, he's amazing. And I'm not surprised to hear that he like wanted to help make the article as great as it was, because he's, as you know, so supportive of the importance of the autopsy and cares a lot about educating others about it. Yeah, I thought I, he was him and all the techs in his lab. Like, I were really grateful to them and also to the photographer who sort of soldiered up and went in there. Wow. It's awesome how everything worked out so well to craft the article. Yeah. But no, I definitely could never have written any of it. And none of this book would have been possible without it. I would have had to ditch it. Yeah, that's really, really great. So going off your experience um, being in the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center morgue, you explain in your article that like just on your second day at the morgue, you transitioned from being a passive observer to an actual active participant in the autopsy, like standing right next to a pathology resident. So I'm wondering what you were like thinking and feeling when that change in roles occurred. What I was thinking, and I remember this, was that it's astonishing how quickly things can be become routine. The speed with which something you never imagined yourself doing can become part of your routine. And I think we've actually all seen it in the last seven months as things like shying away from people have become routine as mask wearing has most of us become routine. The brain adapts as needed. And so the first day I walked in and there's two dead men lying on a table, stark naked. And my brain just sort of goes, well, that's what happens. That's what we look like. And I spent a lot of that day handling organs and touching them and, you know, feeling their weight and getting to know them. And by that second day, I was able to be a little bit helpful rather than just being dead weight in the lab. I could hold a person open. I do need to stress they never let me touch a scalpel. Hmm. Absolutely no sharp objects, which was less for the for the patient's benefit and more for mine because they did not trust me with sharp objects. And they shouldn't have. <laughs> um, so no, no cutting, no old cuttering, but, or I would go over to the computer and I would do data entry for them. It was just, I was there all day. I might as well have been useful. Yeah. But my, my brain worked hard to smooth it into familiarity, but every so often it would sort of remind me that this was not normal. I especially remember being at the computer where, so I would have my back to the, to the body and that sensation of knowing that he was there was just sort of creep over you. Not looking at it was almost worse than, was arguably worse than looking at it. Wow. You were so involved and like, that's so cool that, you weren't just there, but that they let you be of help as well. And I'm sure that only, like you mentioned, like only gave you more insights and only, you know, helped your understanding of what the autopsy is and involves. So that's really, really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm enormously grateful to all of them, not just to Dr. Nine, but also to all the techs 
the PAs, the residents who were there. Right. They were fantastic. Yeah, so going off that, I read on Twitter that you worked on the actual like specific autopsy article research for three years, which now I know technically involves even more time than that. And it was so impressive reading your article and seeing like how many well-known pathologists you interviewed and cited throughout the article. So I'm wondering if you could explain like what the research process looked like and how you got in touch with all these people that shaped your article. Yeah, that's a great question. The main reason this took three years was because one publication sat on it, the one that commissioned it sat on it for two. And I would describe this article as having taken about six to 10 months of active research and then another five months of research this year to re-report, which in the world of long form, sometimes this happens. Publishing takes a shockingly long time. And in this case, the article was backburdered. One of the problems was that it, the, it was not urgent because the problem with writing about an evergreen situation, which is what the decline of the autopsy is, it is an evergreen problem, is that it is not necessarily urgent because it's going to continue to be a problem. And in one case, the article was bumped uh, from an issue about death and an in-memoriam issue on the grounds that there was another article where the people involved were actually dying as opposed to already being dead. And what in eventually what I did do was I pulled the article from that publication and I moved it to Elemental, which is Medium's science and wellness publication. And they do wonderful, wonderful science writing. And they sort of let me publish the article of my dreams, which worked out really well. The way I went about researching this was starting with, after I left Pittsburgh, I kept going. I tried to get other people on the phone, and a lot of it was just cold calling or cold emailing. I wanted something in the, because I live in D.C., I wanted something in the area, and so did my editor. So I went to another pathologist, and I actually won't name her because she gave me an enormous amount of access and she allowed me to witness, especially the death training day at her medical school. She was the chief pathologist there and she also ran death training and she did something very rare, which is that she did death certification training for medical students. And maybe we can come back to that later on. Yeah, I have some questions pertaining to that that I hope we can address later. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. It's but long story short, I wound up, because of the delay, I wound up not being able to use her contribution, but she had let me know of other people that I could contact. And you just sort of go, you just talk to people. You you write them out of the blue. You say, hi, I'm working on this article. And I found that in many cases, you know, especially when people find out that you have seen autopsies and are really writing a full-throated defense of them, they are only too willing to talk. So, uh, Dr. Sanjay Mukhopadhyay at the Cleveland Clinic, for instance, he, I watched a webinar of his and contacted him immediately, and he has been super helpful. The PathPod podcast has interviewed him, and um, yeah, he talked a lot about the autopsy and COVID, which is another topic I hope we can discuss later. And I remember learning so much from that episode and 
seeing immediately how enthusiastic he is about this topic. So I'm not surprised to hear that he was so happy to help you. He was great. I, I would I would just say the the other element of research was I just read everything. I just read everything in sight. Uh, I've had a the I've taken out the autopsy pathology second edition textbook from every university library I've been a part of for the last five years. Wow. Sitting on my desk. No one else is allowed to have it. Nice. <laughs> it's the second edition. It's not the newest one. Okay. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Well, great. Well, I, yeah, I think this like paints a good picture um, for listeners about how your article came to be. So I think it would be great if we could delve more into specific questions about the autopsy. Yes. And I'm hoping we can talk about the myths and misunderstandings surrounding the autopsy, which you know and describe so well in your article. And from how I see it, the many myths and misunderstandings about the autopsy are a part of why the autopsy is on the decline. So can you please explain what you think the biggest, some of the biggest myths and misunderstandings about the autopsy are and how you think they may have come into existence? Sure. I think that misconceptions about the autopsy are an enormous cause of the decline. They are by no means the only one, but they sort of allow it. I think the single biggest one is the fact that we almost immediately identify autopsies with foul play, with a suspicious death, because that is the only way the autopsy is presented in media. Every show, and there have been procedurals about uh, medical examiners going back to, I think, the 70s. I can't remember the name of the show. It was starring a guy named Jack Klugman. Um, I cannot remember. Dr. Quigley, maybe. Something like that. And these have been around a long, long, long time. But that idea is so pernicious that at one point I called the National Death with Dignity campaign to get their take on whether or not they recommend autopsies for for people who undertake a physician-assisted death. And the guy on the phone, who's their press rep, he said, autopsies, I thought those were only in cases of foul play. This is, this is a person whose life is about promoting the good death and had no concept of what is supposed to happen afterward. I would think that a person with who is planning for their death as much as a terminal patient is should also be entitled to plan for what is done with their body. So that really struck me. And I think that part of the effect of TV shows and movies about this is that you get these very jaded, cynical medical examiners. And they're not all like that. There are some good representations. Uh, the medical examiner on Castle was a delight. It's a completely normal functioning person. Like most pathologists because they're doctors but i think that it just gives people the heebie-jeebies it spooks people and people are terrified of mutilation right that is one of the and that is something that you can sue a, a, a pathologist for is my understanding yeah i think the media plays into and promotes myths and misunderstanding so much and i think that's so problematic because for people who like aren't in science or medicine and don't have relatives or close friends that are to hear their firsthand realistic accounts of the autopsy. All they know is from what 
they see on TV and in the movies or, you know, hear other people talking about. And yeah, I think something that is so true, but may not be what first comes to mind for people when they think about the autopsy is that like on TV, like you said, pathologists and medical examiners are portrayed as these like crazy, like antisocial people that just like want to cut up bodies. But that's not true, as we know. And I just think people need to have those that vision corrected because it's so wrong without them realizing even could be the underlying reason for why they're so hesitant or so just outright against the autopsy yeah i mean it's there's a the stigma attached to that implies that something must have gone wrong with this person's death with their loved one's death like if your physician is recommending an autopsy the first question is why? What happened? What are you saying something? Are you implying something? And because so few physicians ever get to see one or are trained in them or even know what their hospital's autopsy policy is, they're ill-equipped to have those conversations and they shouldn't be the ones doing it anyway in an ideal world. I understand hospitals are not ideal worlds. But on the other hand, I will say one thing for those shows, which is that a lot of people who go into the field were inspired by watching. Mm. A lot of people I talked to were like, yeah, I'm super into bones. And that's how I got into this. I saw that and I said, cool. And when I talk to people about the autopsy, there's basically two things that happen. One the person goes, please stop talking. I don't want this. I need to go away from you. The other one is tell me. everything." Mm. And it's, it's instantaneous. And those are the only two options. Right. Like there's no in between. There's no in between. And I learned, I, I, I remember coming back from my two weeks in Pittsburgh and coming back and like going, like going directly to like a big dinner with friends back when we did these things. And the people there were the first time I saw it, two people, including my wife were like, uh, uh-uh, I'm going to the other side of the table. And another one just leaned in. I was like, talk was that person particularly interested in science or medicine or they just wanted to hear no they just wanted to hear they're not they were not no they had no uh, affiliation with science in particular there's just a way that the body can either ensorcel or repel people and that goes triple for dead bodies my mother my mother wants to hear all about this my father leaves the room based on my experiences too like you either meet people that are like oh wow like that's so cool something i don't know about tell me more and then some people are just like you're so weird for being interested in this like can we change the subject (laughs) but yeah i think i agree the myths and misunderstandings are huge and i think it stems from the media and then i i think another component that you also described in the article a bit um comes from religious and cultural beliefs and preferences and would you be able to talk about what you learned on that matter? Yeah, though that turned out to be very uh, a very interesting pathway. You know, in the in the Jewish community, uh, intactness is extremely important. You want the body the person to go into the ground as fast as possible, and you, it's very important that they be intact, which presents a real problem. Uh, my understanding, and I really could be wrong about this, is that the autopsy rate in Israel is quite low. It, all, Israel also struggles with uh, organ transplants. But 
Judaism does also make an exception for these rules if the discoveries that an autopsy brings can help save another life. The, Judaism makes a lot of carve-outs that can permit the autopsy. I think there's a similar, I don't know the details of Islam quite as well, but pathologists have also found workarounds for this. One pathologist I talked to had uh, an Orthodox Jewish patient. And, you know, as, as you know, having seen autopsies, you can, you take the bags full of organs and you can put them back into the body and sew them up. Right. So the organs are, in fact, can be restored to the body if they're not put back in place. And then they're sewn up. In her case, she also took all of the towels that were used and also put them back into the body because that was the patient's blood. So she, for that patient, she restored not just all of his organs, but also all of his blood to the body to preserve that sense of intactness. And another press rep for the DC medical examiner once told me that he tries to work as bloodlessly as possible, tries to work around major veins and arteries because, quote, that's the patient's blood. It belongs to them. So religious uh, concerns are scrupulously paid attention to. And whenever possible, doctors will go above and beyond to accommodate them, which is something I really respect. I'm also Jewish, so I'm aware of these misunderstandings and so really appreciated you exploring them and realizing how, in fact, accommodations can be made for people's religious beliefs. And similarly, I once spoke with a pathologist who worked at a large Jewish-affiliated hospital, and she explained that pathologists actually work like really closely with with rabbis to hmm. um, form a mutually agreed-upon plan for the patient and their family and to make sure all their concerns and preferences are addressed. And I just think, like you said as well, accommodations can be made and workarounds can be figured out and these myths and misunderstandings aren't true. And um, yes, cultures and, and religions have preferences, but they're not the end all be all. If an autopsy is desired or any, like any other medical treatment, for example, is desired, there can be ways to make it possible. So I'm just wondering, would you say that you bought into like some or all these myths before your research? It's, I'm trying to think. And it's always hard to think of whatever myths you had exploded after something became so obvious to you. I, I think my the biggest myth might have been the, the idea that the lighting in autopsy labs is really dim. Like, because that's how it's always done on the show. So, like, if I conceived it, I would have imagined this, like, like cold, sear, slightly blue-shifted light. And no, that's not right. There's bleach everywhere. Um, I also had no way of fathoming how... De I definitely imagined that the bodies would be like they were in that gross anatomy lab. I thought there was a lot of formalin involved. There's like no formalin involved. Mm -hmm. Right? It's the, the, the way that a body feels is, I, was extraordinary. And yeah, those were the things that really jarred me. I also thought that I was going to, I am, I am a physical coward. I thought I was going to have trouble and I was shocked that I didn't. 
just it seemed to make sense. I recall in the article you wrote that you brought. I forgot which medicine, but you brought like an over-the-counter medicine like to help. Chewable antacids. Oh yeah, there you go. And you didn't actually need them. It's not like they would have done me any good anyway, but like they were like a security blanket. Yeah, didn't need them. Great. Um. So now that we know um, that the autopsy is surrounded by so many myths, myths and misunderstandings, I think to highlight why that's so problematic. Um, would require us to discuss like what the benefits of the autopsy are and why it's such a problem that the autopsy is on, on the decline and why the autopsy is something you should care about. And I know yeah, from your article that you looked into this a lot and that you've grown to understand how valuable the autopsy is, even like on your first day in the morgue, you said before. So can you explain what you think some of the major benefits of the autopsy are that you realize while conducting your research? The first one is historical, and it is wrong to reject historical value as not necessarily having modern day value. And what I mean by that is that autopsy is the reason we know anything about the body at all. And the lengths to which doctors had to go for so long to get that knowledge, the danger they had to put themselves and other people in, the conditions that they subjected themselves to, those things matter. Also, when I say the conditions they subjected themselves to, I also mean like some of the, some of the lengths that they went to, which were definitely beyond what we would consider acceptable. You know, the, the we, we, we all know about Birkin hair, but what I didn't know was that there were medical school riots in New York in the, late 1700s, early 1800s, John Jay, was then I think Secretary of State, got his head cracked with a rock at one of them. 20 people died at Columbia University because a mob was furious at the desecrations that were happening in there. And it's worth noting, I put this in the article, but it's worth noting that they had been doing this on uh, bodies claimed from what was called at the time the Negro burial ground. Um, and there had been huge outcry from both freedmen and slaves in New York, and nobody cared until it was a white woman. So I think it's one, it's ne- it's important to know the history of the art, because the art is why we know what happens inside us. And there is a sense, and it's been documented, there's, there's, a, there's a clear sense for a lot of people that at this stage, given our ability to see inside the body, given our imaging, given our ability to do biopsies, that there is no need. But what we know is that diagnostic error rates still remain extremely high. And autopsies remain the gold standard for diagnosis. And however certain people are, you need that quality control. And there are there are pathologists who have made this case much more eloquently than I have. I'm going to try to remember. Dr. Makapaje told me a story about a conference he went to where people were laboring over a diagnosis of a woman who had died and came up with all of these different things, all these different ideas. And no one had noticed that she was pregnant. And that's one of the key elements, that quality control element. It keeps hospitals accountable. Um, there was a, NPR, PBS, and I think ProPublica piece a couple of years ago that was called um, 
without autopsies, hospitals bury their mistakes. And I'm, I'm bouncing around here a little bit more than I'd like to, but there is still a lot that you cannot see with imaging. One thing that was pointed out to me by a doctor was uh, signet cell carcinomas, damn near invisible and hereditary. If it's, I was told uh, one patient had uh, developed a severe and developed an infection and got a sort of an abdominal washout and it, nothing helped and died swiftly. And it turned out that there had been a signal cell carcinoma in there all along and nobody had any idea. And they thought it was just a hospital infection. Wow. So the patient was probably given antibiotics for what was actually cancer. Yeah, potentially. So these things, and you know, everybody can point to stories of mistakes. And the simple fact is that this is a relatively low cost intervention. And I say intervention on purpose. Because it would seem weird to call something an intervention after a patient's already dead. But for one thing, the death of the patient is only a step in the process for the grieving family. It's only a step in the process of learning for the doctor. You learn from making mistakes. You learn from having those mistakes caught. The family learns from learning the truth. They get closure. After I published this article, I got a lot of comments from people who'd had loved ones die. And for instance, with sudden rapid onset dementia and they're gone in, in a couple of months. And that kind of dementia has so many causes and they never got answers. And what does it mean for them? The value of the autopsy, you have to assess over centuries, right? In terms of the development of medical knowledge, but you also have to look at it over careers for doctors, over generations for families. That's the timeline it works on. And then there's the importance of it to medical knowledge itself. It's part of the incrementalism of care. You're not going to necessarily find a new pathogen based on one autopsy. And in fact, that our new pathogen, it took them forever to find because they weren't doing autopsies, um, especially in China, where there are almost no autopsies at all. But the, here's the example I like to use. Um, when I got, I got sick, I got COVID in mid-April. I have no idea how I got it. I was masked in supermarkets. My guess is the elevator in my building just had a, sort of a buildup. And so I take an immunosuppressant uh, drug for a chronic mild condition. I asked my doctor, should I go off that drug? Because I really needed my immune system to work. And he said that our recommendation is that you do not discontent, dis, discontinue therapy. Because if you do, and this drug takes a long time to build up in the system. It takes over a month. And I've been on it for over a decade. If you go off of it, you can't just jump right back on if you have a flare-up. If you have a flare-up, you're going on steroids. You do not want to be on steroids right now. The autopsy works in a similar way, is my feeling. If you stop doing them, you lose the knowledge of not just what they, not just the knowledge they give you, but also the knowledge of how to do it. Because so few people are learning how to do it. There are so few people who are experts in it. The average age for forensic pathologists in America is 52. It is an exquisitely complicated art. It takes many, many years to learn. You can't just start it up again. You can't just suddenly fund it 
and expect all of the knowledge to be there again. You have to keep doing it like any kind of preventative care. And that's what really scares me. Yeah. And also who's going to teach, you know, young pathologists to perform the autopsy if it's a dying art in science, like in order for more people to learn, there need to be teachers. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I mean, they've lowered the number of autopsies you have to do to get board certified as a pathologist to 50. And a number of pathologists told me that that's simply not enough. Yeah, I think you touched on a lot of the important benefits of the autopsy. And um, I know COVID is one huge example, which I hope we can talk about separately afterwards, since that's like a whole subject in and of itself. So now I'm wondering about some of the challenges surrounding the autopsy that you described in the article. So in addition to the myths and misunderstandings that pervade society, there are also challenges like on more of the medical community level. And um, you mentioned earlier about death certificates. So I think now would be a good time to talk about death certificate training as one of these challenges surrounding the autopsy. And so in your article, you explain that studies have found that death certificates are very often incorrectly completed. So can you please explain um, the reasons you identified for why this is the case? And what do you think the consequences of this death certificate landscape are for medicine and for public health? Yeah, um, death certification training is it's alarming. And it is something that drives pathologists out of their minds. It's something that's very simple, but it's just not given any attention. In, in my research, I was only able to find one program, and there very well may be more, and I hope that there are more one medical school program that folded death certification training into the the death day experience where they also bring in actors to uh, simulate bereaved family. The, the death certificate asks the clinician to fill out the immediate cause of death followed by up to three underlying or proximate causes of death. The thing is, what exactly causes a person to die is complicated. It's not necessarily just a function of what they had. It's You're trying to answer what processes actually caused a person to irreversibly expire. The body does not want to do that, so it makes it hard. And very often the people filling out that form are exhausted residents on hour 23 or 28 of a night float and there are maybe they're in on an ICU shift and there's other people there that they need to attend to who if they get there in time might not need to have death certificates filled out and meanwhile they have family members they need to inform they have other paperwork that they have to fill out and so uh, some people told me like they're dead what difference does it make it makes a huge difference in the long run but in that exact moment it can be hard to summon up that kind of remove and distance and even put in the kind of work that you actually need to articulate the full process of death. And so, like, half the time, people write arrhythmia or cardiac arrest. Neither of these are causes of death. They are a part, but we all die of cardiac arrest. That's why you can't write it. That's why you can't write it. Very much not answering the question. And yet, that happens 
as much as fully half the time, according to some studies. And that's been a problem for a very long time. Some studies estimate errors in death certification as being uh, upwards of 80% of death certificates include like a minor error and then moving to around 50% for a more major error. This is a problem because not only because death certificates are important for the family, they help you execute wills, uh, among other things, but also because all of those statistics get reported. Mm -hmm. And so statistics that are based on death certificates are nearly valueless. Right. And puzzling that out is something that takes time. It takes energy. It takes thought. It takes knowledge. And it's not always apparent. And that is what the autopsy is for. And very often, if somebody has somebody has cancer, it's very easy to assume that you know why they died. The process of that death, though, may not be as apparent. And I think that there's a lot of doctors out there who just who who feel with maybe with some justification that if you know a person had a malignant cancer, that is what did it. You have the cause. Exactly what processes led to it, led to the actual death, may not be as important. And I can appreciate that, but you can't know if you're not looking. Right. You don't know what, you, what you're not seeing. and You don't know what you don't know. Right. And the autopsy, like we said before, is a valuable tool for doctors to learn about the patient's treatment and response to therapy. And like, say that cancer patient was on a clinical trial and an experimental treatment. The autopsy would allow the physician and the research community at large to learn more about that treatment. What's yeah. effective about it? What's not? If this patient's tumor was, you know, metastatic and a grade four and the therapy failed, maybe that's a sign that the therapy doesn't have as great or as broad indications as initially thought. And that's such valuable information. So yeah, I see on one, like one side of the coin, if, you know, a cancer patient seems to die of their cancer and you know, the clinician and the family, like, are happy at that. Okay, but knowledge-wise, like, no, there's so much more we can learn about the cancer and the patient's story um, from the autopsy. The autopsy on such a patient could better inform that patient's death certificate. So instead of just writing, like, malignancy, we could better understand the cause, like, the processes leading up to it and how maybe that cancer's intertwined with other pathophysiological physiology that relates to the underlying malignancy. Yeah. And I, one thing I will say is that is, that is positive is that um, some hospitals are now rolling out what are called rapid autopsies. And this is especially coming out of Johns Hopkins where um, people are sort of enrolled in this program before they die. And at the moment, like right when they're the, the autopsist is dispatched, and it's a very limited autopsy. It's really going right at the tumors. And it's done within 12 hours of the patient's death. It's super quick. And the biggest funders and proponents of these are actually oncology departments for exactly this reason. Because you really want to be able to look at what was in there and what happened and what the, and look at the tumors and the, and the fallout. So that's a place where something new and promising is happening. It takes a ton of skill to do, but it's something that other departments, you know, the oncology department is going to be a lot more, a lot better funded than the pathology department. So they have more pull, they can uh, afford these things. 
Right. Actually, prior to medical school, I worked um, in research at a cancer hospital, and they were at the time working on launching a rapid autopsy program, which, as you explained, is huge and would receive hopefully like a lot of support at a cancer hospital. And so I spoke with a pathologist at the hospital who actually had collaborated in the past with people at Hopkins. And so she knew like the arguments for why rapid autopsies are so important and valuable to cancer. And I vividly remember her telling me about how like these rapid autopsies allow us to sequence tumors that we otherwise wouldn't be able to. And that sequencing data informs one, our knowledge of those cancers, but also can impact the family members of the patients who passed away and help us to see and like give us reason to want to see if if their relatives also have those genetic mutations that that may predispose them to the same cancers um, and to understand the hereditary bases of those cancers. So yeah, I think rapid autopsies are something yeah, we should definitely keep our eyes out for and it'll be interesting to see how hopefully they can advance the autopsy and um, highlight you know to the world further why the autopsy is so important yeah and they would also help doctors have that conversation with the patient which is really the next the next issue here right which is the sheer you know i don't know how often in medicine the problem comes down to communication but our communication is a huge problem here mm-hmm. because the way that most hospitals ask, if they ask, which they don't necessarily, it's that same resident, or maybe if you're lucky, uh, an attending has to ask the family if they want an autopsy. It's a box to check on a, on that, on a form and it's part of the death packet. And that, Doctor is going to that conversation completely unarmed, not having seen any autopsies before. I think, what is it, something like 10% of uh, doctors ever seen autopsy? I'd have to double check about that. I know, I know for my research that like only 40% of medical schools that participated in a survey said that they require autopsy education. And for medical schools that don't require autopsy education, Medical students probably aren't seeing autopsies because the only way they would see one is to reach out to a pathologist on their own. Like there's no incentive for them to see one. To go to the local ME. So yeah, so very, very few medical students see autopsies during medical school, which also makes sense because few medical students actually become pathologists. So the ones that are more, that are going to be more interested in seeing autopsies are just like a small handful um, of yeah. medical students in every class. So yeah, we're talking very few non-pathologist physicians actually seeing autopsies in med school. And I'm actually working on a research project right now where this is something I'm asking of my future um, study participants to see if they've observed autopsies at any point in their career. And I'm really looking forward to collecting that data to be like only like the single digit percent number of non-pathologist physicians have actually ever seen an autopsy and that is why they're so or partly why they're so ill-equipped to have these conversations because they can't talk about the autopsy they can't can't say this is what it entails this is why it's important this is why i think you should consider it yeah i mean think of how that conversation goes like 
uh, would you like an autopsy for, for your father? Why? Uh, well, we, it's, it's very important, uh, knowledge for us and it may help you. It's like, did you make a mistake? Is there something you don't know? I thought you knew what you were doing. That conversation, it happens so fast. This is the worst moment to act. And it's, it's not even that. It's these people are grief stricken. As one doctor told me, I've had people literally screaming at me in the room. There's a terrible time to have that conversation. And that's how it's almost always done. So the person who's least equipped to have that conversation is having it at the worst possible time. And it's so much easier just for a person, for a family member to say, no, 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 no. I was, I just want them. I want, I, I want to take possession of the body, right? Give me my dad. And one doctor that I spoke to, a, a, a pulmonologist and ICU specialist who has written a lot. He's a, he's a, he also writes a lot about, about care. He does not recommend autopsies. Um, he's had a child die and he, all he wanted was to get to collect the body to start the grieving process. And it's hard to argue with that, right? Which is why you should. It would not be a huge outlet for hospitals to establish a one-person decedent affairs office. And some hospitals have this. And their job is to call the patient, to call the family the next day. And that then a person who is trained in this can have that conversation and can articulate why this would be necessary. It's the same way that they found when they trained DMV employees to explain why being an organ donor is good, numbers of organ donors skyrocketed. You need someone who's good at it. But then again, you can train doctors as much as you want, but that's not going to matter if the funding isn't there, if the money isn't there, because that's the third problem. Right. Yeah, we have not talked about that yet. So maybe, like for listeners who don't know, you could briefly explain the financial issues surrounding the autopsy, like going back to its history and how that's led to the current situation we have today and how that affects the decline of the autopsy. Yeah. I mean, right now, if you're a medical student, you're in a teaching hospital. And if you're in a teaching hospital, there's a solid chance that your hospital is offering autopsies to patients free of charge because you are training pathology residents. If you're not in a large teaching hospital or in a hospital that is part of a regional network. So when I was at Pittsburgh, that UPMC, UPMC is a vast network that actually sources that will process the autopsies for like the whole of Western Pennsylvania. If the hospitals that they die in are within that network. But up until the late sixties, uh, autopsy rates in America were extremely high. Med doc, uh, hospitals had to maintain a rate of at least 20% to maintain their accreditation, and they went as high as 60%. In 1971, uh, JICO changes its requirements for uh, accreditation. It no, you no longer need to hit that limit. In 19, I think, 86, Medicare effectively ceases covering it. And so now you don't have to do it, and you're not getting covered. Immediately, hospitals start eliminating their autopsy suites because they're not going to cover that on their own. That's really when it starts to plummet. By this year, autopsy rates are now 4.3%. And that is actually high relative to the rest of the world. The UK is under 1%. China, where COVID began, is very close to zero, 
which surprised me a lot, actually. But now the way that they are funded, if it's not in a teaching hospital, um, because insurance never, ever covers them. The way that they're funded is that Medicare provides a lump sum to hospitals that doesn't cover autopsies, but it covers a number of things potentially, including autopsies. But what that means is that that money is fungible. It can be used for other things. So it actually, you can save money by not doing autopsies. So it's an active disincentive for hospitals to support those suites. You can't bill for it either. It's not a line item in Medicare anymore. And hospitals are billing machines. That's what they are. If they're not good at, if they can't bill for something, they're just not going to do it. So that is something that needs to be solved at the political administrative levels. And I do believe, in fact, that the one of the ways that people can help solve that is by informing themselves about the procedure and asking for it. Make it harder for hospitals to ignore it. Right. In my view, going back to the 1970s and 80s with the events you described, they essentially just conveyed, in other words, look, the autopsy is not important to medicine. We don't want to spend the money on it. But that's so problematic. Yeah, it's a mess at every level. So as you explain in your article, there is currently a huge shortage of forensic pathologists, um, not only in the U.S., but also worldwide. And so I'm wondering if you have any ideas for how medicine can address the shortage of physicians who perform autopsies, as this seems to be like one of the multiple important challenges surrounding the decline in autopsy rates. Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question. And I guess the best way that I can answer it as someone who is very much not a medical professional, uh, nor someone who is native to the medical world, is I would break the idea of medicine into smaller pieces. Medicine exists as multiple little fiefdoms. Um, so there's medical training, there's medical accounting, there's medical administration. All of these things have places have different roles to play. So I would certainly say that the easiest intervention is medical training. Uh, and we've talked about this, the necessity of uh, providing better death certification training, the necessity of making autopsies more available to students of, of and of pathology in general being a more respected discipline, which it should be. And one of the things that the article about Jeffrey Nine that was written back in 2015 does wonderfully is it talks to a lot of pathology residents about how they feel as what they feel like the medical world sees pathologists as. I think at one point she's like, we're like one person describes them as themselves as feeling like the cockroaches of the medical world, which they're not. And they provide an extraordinarily essential role, but that I think is the, what medical schools need to do. And I am sensitive to the fact that there is more stuff than ever that a medical student needs to learn and less time in which to learn. The, there is an infinity 
of information that you are required to pack in your head. And so of necessity, some things get thrown by the wayside. But I do think that for many doctors, death is a part of care. Not everybody, right? But for so many doctors, it is an essential part of the way that you think about what you do and understanding its particulars matters. And if I'm talking to an audience of pathology residents, I'm preaching to the converted already. But then there are things that more senior doctors can do, right? There's what medical students can ask for and demand and be interested in. And then there's stuff that they have no control of. There's a lot of stuff they have no control of. But more senior doctors, hospital administrators, they can, they can put a little bit more priority on this. These are not like a, an, a, a good autopsy costs about the same amount of money as a Remicade drip. They're, they range from about one to $10,000. That's for a private autopsy. In terms of what things cost in medicine, that's not that much. And granted, it's hard to bill for it, but there are ways to defend it. There are ways to mainstream it. And in, the, in so doing, you will make your care better. You'll make your hospital better. It just requires long-term vision. And I can't speak to how much long-term vision hospital administrators have, but when they're brought by private equity funds, maybe not so much. Yeah, the financial landscape definitely needs improvement. And I just want to go off a particular paragraph you wrote in your um, article where you wrote that an autopsy makes a doctor better. It can show a doctor exactly how a treatment affected their patient's body, which is crucial for clinical trials and especially crucial in assessing the impact of COVID-19 treatment. So this makes me think that, or this reminds me of the importance of like improving education about the autopsy as part of the solution. So I'm wondering if you think that the autopsy, in terms of like autopsy observation experiences, should be part of medical training for all types of doctors. I know we talked about the death certificate training being really important and emphasizing pathology in medical school, but postgraduate training-wise, what do you think? I definitely think, in an ideal world, certainly. Um, I think you'll probably agree that the simple tactile experience alone, the sensory experience alone of an autopsy is valuable. And it also reminds you, I think, of your roots as a doctor, the discipline that you are in, and you can see where it comes from. There was a time when you know, the autopsy relies on touch and vision, but also smell. And there was a time in medicine where taste really mattered too. And now, thankfully, we're beyond that. But it was not uncommon for doctors to taste patients' urine to see if it was sugary. It was not uncommon to taste bile or pus because those are the diagnostic instruments that you had. And so, yeah, in an ideal world, I absolutely think that caring for the dead, which is what an autopsy is, that's why I call them patients. Caring for the dead should be part of your consciousness. But at the same time, I recognize that uh, it may, may, or not, may or may not be feasible to do that for every medical student. I don't know. Um, when I was writing this, my editor asked me if I was 
implying that every death in America should be autopsied, that or that if hospitals should have a policy of autopsying every patient, I said, absolutely not. You would overwhelm practitioners in the same way that the opioid epidemic has just mauled medical examiners nationwide. Right. The supply and the demand don't align. Yeah. But in an ideal world, you should learn to care for the dead. We should all learn to care for the dead, whether or not we're doctors. I agree. And like we said before, there are so, so many benefits of the autopsy, not only for medicine and public health and research, but also for people as humans, right? Like in terms of the closure and comfort that the autopsy provides for grieving family members, in terms of understanding and, th and contemplating human suffering and the importance of, you know, living life to our fullest and caring about our health and all these important lessons that I think we can obtain from what the autopsy can offer us. So I agree completely that it's important for life at large and humanity. Yeah. And, you know, you asked about ways to, you know, medicine can address this. I think that's probably the cheapest way for them to do it by specifically by having people, by having students involved in autopsies, even if you're going to go into dermatology, right? Or, or radiology, especially you should know what those things look like on the inside. Right. I know. It's so crazy to think that, say, even like a cardiologist who treats all, you know, these heart problems may not have seen a diseased pathological heart since anatomy class in medical school how many years ago you asked me what myths i i had going into this process i'm pretty I'm, i think that might have been it i think the myth the real myth was that doctors understood this process mm. and they do not i think that was the real myth that i had that there was an understanding there it's easy to fix that that one's an easy fix but yeah so before we like wrap up with some like final thoughts, I thought it would be great if we could just talk a bit about COVID and the autopsy. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about before, you started this research years ago. And I know time is like such a weird concept these days, but I'm wondering like how the start of COVID changed your thoughts on how you would organize your article and what directions you were planning on taking it in. Oh, yeah. I mean, completely. It's a great question. Uh, COVID completely altered this article and it kind of resurrected it because otherwise it was going to have continued sitting on the desk of this editor. Um, and I came back and I said, like, this is important. This is an important part of the story that hasn't been reported. Um, and so starting around March or April, uh, just before I got sick, um, I started digging into this because I had friends who were telling me that flying around Medical Twitter were these reports of eruptions of microclots, um, and that it was only on it only seemed to be on Twitter. The doctors were talking to each other and they were seeing this happen, and they needed autopsies to verify it. They were having trouble ver like that th maybe this was the problem. You know, people were still trying to figure out what the hell COVID was, how it affected the body. We're still trying to figure that out, and so I started putting my ear to the ground there, and I started reworking this the, the piece completely changed completely shifted focus and was rewritten more or less from scratch um over the summer as it began to develop but yeah i started that's when i started calling doctors again talked to them and i started reaching out to people on twitter to try to get more information about this clotting activity and that was when uh, a friend 
at Yale uh, connected me with these hematologists who had written a study about the way that it's, it affects the endothelium. And that was, you know, they, they wound up with a paragraph or two in the story. I talked to them for like two hours. <laughs> wow. It took a long time to explain the endothelium to me. So I actually was learning about the endothelium and blood clotting and platelets the same week that your article came out. <laughs> and so when I read the paragraph about how COVID affects the endothelium and specifically targets the endothelium, which is, as you know, incredibly important for the blood clotting process, that if the endothelium gets messed up, the whole platelet activation cascade gets messed up and ultimately you can form lots of blood clots when they shouldn't be forming and then you can't get rid of them when you should be getting rid of them yeah and i i would be remiss if i didn't mention that elemental published a major article on this um back in may uh, their senior science writer named dana smith wrote an article which is i think the biggest thing they've ever published called coronavirus may be a blood vessel disease which explains everything which basically laid all this out um and so we already had sort of in-house knowledge about this this really fine piece of science writing um so that was that definitely caused the article to 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 change but i was floored when i started digging into it because i would have assumed that country this is a brand new infectious disease i would have assumed that countries especially china would have been aggressively autopsying patients and so when i tuned into dr mukapaje's webinar and found out that there was nothing I, I was genuinely floored. And it turns out that the autopsy is all but extinct in China. Nobody can do it anymore. Mm. It's just not at all value. And so we were very much flying blind in terms of the effect that it has on the lungs. And what autopsy showed us was everything from the fact that intubation was in many cases not helpful. Right. To the problem of clotting. The clots that are too small to pick up on scans. Yeah, I think two major things come out of these autopsy findings that are so huge. The reminder that sophisticated medical technology cannot tell and show us everything. So as many fancy scans that you do on a patient with many small blood clots that these scans won't pick up, then you won't know about these blood clots that may take their life. And that's huge that the autopsy has taught us that. I mean, it seemed like a simple calculus to me, and it really threw the failure. I think I called this the spark that reveals the gas leak a little bit too late. You have people dying like never before, and you need to know what's inside them. So I, I hope, and I hope that this article plays some small part in it, but I, I, I do hope that COVID has reminded people of how important the discipline is and what how like just how blind we are without it. Definitely. Yeah, I am really grateful that your article, even though the idea for it, you know, was years ago, it was able to still be in the works during COVID because I think it made your article so much more like relevant time wise in our in our in all of our lives. And like you said at the very beginning of our talk, like this was not an urgent topic. Like this article could have come out whenever and your editor had no real incentive to publish it super fast, but then COVID gave it so much more meaning and incentive and relevance in all of our lives. And I agree completely with what you wrote in the article where like COVID can serve as an opportunity 
and a reason for us to be motivated to change the autopsy practice. And here's why. Like, COVID is is an amazing, huge example. Yeah. I mean, as Tim Geithner used to say, never waste a crisis. It's an opportunity to make things better. Definitely. A few, yeah, lasting questions I have. Um, So I realize from all your research and knowledge about the autopsy that you've gained that I think you're so uniquely positioned um, to share your thoughts on how an individual may go about initiating conversations with their loved ones about what they want at the end of their lives in terms of both their clinical care and what they want done to their body. And I realize that this is more of a sensitive subject, but if you're willing to share, I would be eager to hear your thoughts and any advice you have for others about how they can go about, yeah, these important conversations. Yeah, I mean, I have the great advantage of having put my, I don't have to have the conversation about what I want because I published it. <laughs> it's put it in print for a lot of people to read. I think that in my family, there is a, there's a more healthy relationship with it. My, one of the great gifts that my grandfather gave before he died at 95 was that he really had his affairs in order and he planned for his death. He knew what he wanted. He knew what he didn't want. He had left the family with at least clear, with clear instructions and a clear sense of what to do. And it was deeply responsible of him to do that. And even so, there was the amount of logistics. You know, I remember my, my mother, like, having to call to cancel his checks. The amount of work that death involves. And that is expected death. That is planned for death is colossal. And when you don't plan for it, um, I know a woman, elderly woman whose husband recently died, and he had always taken care of their affairs. He knew where everything was, where everything was filed. And when he died, she didn't know where anything was. She didn't know how he'd organize things. She didn't, like, on the computer, she couldn't find things. Important stuff. So we don't, we, we're afraid of these conversations because they force you to consent to dying in a way, to agree to it. And I think that it's, that's terrifying. And it's even more terrifying than for the people around me because then they have to feel like they have to console you, that it's, it's awkward for everybody. But there's an increasing movement of people out there who, are strong advocates for uh, planning for death, for handling it. People like the Order of the Good Death, uh, writers like Caitlin Doty and Ann Newman, who are way out ahead of helping people have these conversations. And they're much better authorities on it than I am. My advice, I think, would be to read them. Frankly, it's just, uh, just, they will, those writers, contacting people in the order of the good death. They have resources for people and it's the ethical and responsible thing to do. It's like you should have a living will. And part of the process of creating that will should be how to handle your affairs, how to handle your body. And it's important to remember that in a lot of states, you cannot consent to your own autopsy. In some you can, but in many, you can say who you want your, what you want done with your, Kitchen equipment, but you can't say what you want done with your own body. Right. The family member has the power to overrule you, but you can at least make your wishes known. 
And I promise you that when the time comes, you will be really grateful you had that conversation because then you can be, you can relax. You can be more at peace. The whole family will be more at peace. So I think that this is something that should just become normalized. And there's, there are really good people out there helping to make it happen. So, yeah, I'm just wondering, as you mentioned before, like at what point in your you know research, you realize what you wanted, like at what point were you convinced enough by the autopsy that you wanted to do as much as you can for science um, at the end of your life? The Mi uh, Mary Roach, actually. <laughs> Take it all the way back to Mary Roach. Reading that book, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, the mid uh, reading that book, I probably would have done it before. But yeah, there was no question once I read that book. And I realized that the, the, the main character in my book, the dead guy, he donates his body because he wants uh, the initial reason he's a, he's a cook and he wants, uh, he wants to teach some kids some knife skills, but more broadly, you know, cause they got to learn how to use the scalpel. Might as well teach some knife skills, but more broadly, it's because he doesn't just cause he's dead doesn't mean he's done. He can keep working. And more broadly, the reason I wrote this book is out of a general thesis that there is life left in the body as long as you are willing to see it. It's like a house. It's like an abandoned house. But inside the house, there's history. Just because the lights are off and the water isn't running anymore doesn't mean that the house is gone. And the house is decaying, but that decay is a process too. If you know how to look, there is still life in that house. And it's in learning how to look that we learn a new way to live. And death is this long process. It's not just this flicking of a switch. We don't talk about it because it's hard to talk about, but if we can square up to it a little bit, there's a lot of grace to be gained. And, and all of the great, all the great hymns, the great, great American songs, they're, they're a part of squaring up to death and inhabiting it and walking with it. And that, that's what we used to do. That is what people used to do. We had to do it. It was much more a part of our lives than it is now. And now death is this thing that's been sort of scalpeled off from life. It's been sealed away. And I'm glad that in the last 15 years, more people are dying at home than they were 10, 15 years ago when deaths in hospitals were something like 70%. Now it's something like 50% of us die either at home or in hospice care. But it's this great gigantic part of life that's going to happen to everybody. And anything that we can do that makes us less scared of it, I think, helps. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing these really important insights that we don't often think about, but are really important to hear. So to wrap up our talk, which has been so informative, I just wanted to share like a little excerpt from actually my personal statement to medical school that relates about the autopsy. Fabulous. And I think it like relates a lot to our conversation today and gets at a lot of things we've discussed. So what I wrote was um, referring to my autopsy observation, actually, as I said before, with Dr. Williamson, who you met for your article or spoke to for your article. So in my personal statement, I wrote, the morgue was far from scary. Any initial trepidation was transformed into a deep sense of curiosity. Similarly, I envisioned the medical community overcoming its economic misgivings and indecision about routine autopsy use when its inherent value to medical progress is revealed. I want to be a part of this process. So thank you so much, Sam, for working to reveal the inherent value of the autopsy through the article that you wrote. 
And I really appreciate you talking with me today for Path Elective users as part of this very important process. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for reading the piece. And if it brought aid and comfort to the pathologists out there, then I'm very happy. Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.